This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. What if we think about democracy through that idea that it's not about just 51%, it's about everybody being empowered, everybody. And like, if, if you don't get your way this time, how do you get to continue to participate in order to try to, to make, a, make the case for your, for your belief, your interest, your desire uh, the next time around? And again, keeping in mind like the larger collective self-interest. Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara Ong Whaley. Hi, I'm Katie Robidek. I'm an assistant professor of political science at Hood College, where I direct the Martha E. Church Center for Civic and Community Engagement. Joining us for this episode are Greg Lasky, a civilian assistant professor of English at the United States Air Force Academy, and Bert Emerson, associate professor of English and director of the Honors Program at Whitworth University in Spokane, Washington. They are co-editors of a new book entitled Democracies in America, published by Oxford University Press. Greg and Bert, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. I really enjoyed reading this book. Um, It's very engaging. It's conversational. Um, It's comprised of short essays that make it really tangible and accessible for readers. I wonder if you can start by sharing what motivated this project and what you hope readers will take away from it. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what your vision is for how this new book will be used. Well, I think the motivation started for us. Uh, Greg and I met and as graduate students and both were interested in 19th century American literature and democracy and uh, through various conversations over time, trying to figure out how we could con- to collaborate in different ways. It started with a conference panel and then turned into a journal forum and uh, after finishing that, decided to keep going uh, and inviting new people and, and, and bringing more disciplines to the conversation beyond our, our home fields of literary studies. And we just uh, pitched it to a few different places and, and eventually found a home at, at Oxford uh, University Press, where we've had a, a fantastic experience. Um, two people, as, as two uh, instructors who have taught some first-year composition, I think we had the initial motivation to think about what could be used in a classroom, particularly in that form, uh, for early uh, college students learning academic writing or other forms of writing, and how we could uh, make these essays both accessible as well as uh, provocative, the, the kind of material that spurs critical thinking in ways that hopefully ha- develop some civic mindedness as well. Um, we didn't want to just limit it only to the academic world. We also hope to stretch a little bit beyond that into cafes and other places where co- we believe conversations about democracy are, are needed and uh, valuable in the present day. Uh, and so I think that was a lot of our motivation. Yeah, I think you know everything that Bert said, one, one small anecdote that I'll add is when I moved to Colorado, which is sort of, there's lots going on in terms of political ideas and, and thinking, but um, I was talking to someone about democracy, in a, not in an academic setting, just at like a, a gathering. And, and the person said, well, but you know, it's not a democracy, we're a republic. And I thought, huh, I had never heard that before. But now I realize that's a pretty, that's a commonplace. Um to me, it was it was a curiosity, and, and in a way, I think, as Bert mentioned, hopefully this book could shed some light on those sorts of encounters that we have. You know, Danielle Allen's first essay is "Democracy versus Republic." 
I'm really glad that you brought up this conversation about democracy versus republic. Um, I have a very similar anecdote. Over the last year and a half or so, I started hearing that framing um, specifically that we aren't a democracy, we are a republic. Um, and I actually heard it first in a conversation with my sister. So of course, I had to go do some research on it. And I saw that that framing and renewed emphasis on republic was being emphasized um, in in uh news media outlets that are primarily concerned by the right and especially being used by Tucker Carlson and other pundits. Um, and then subsequently, I saw that state Republican Party platforms were replacing the word democracy with republic. Um, you know, and this really brings up the next question that I wanted to touch on, which is, how should we understand the tensions in multiple meanings and concepts? I think, you know, just to get started, one of the um, books, people, influences we cite in our introduction, Bert and I, is Raymond Williams, who has this, the famous book of keywords for uh, culture and society. And one of the things that was so influential to me is that he talked about his military service after the Second World War and coming back um, to his, you know, native country in the UK um, and, and just thinking about though, even though they were speaking the same language, people weren't speaking the same language. And I think that that's one of the, our book doesn't try to define terms in the sense of a dictionary, as William said, but it give us a vocabulary. So on the one hand, we want to have play and possibility and difference and disagreement. Um, on the other hand, though, I think, you know, democracy does require understanding key terms and values so that a conversation can happen. I think that maybe one of the things our book, this book has taken such a long time, and as it has uh, come into being, our political world has changed too. And I think that maybe one of the ways to start um, would be to think about how we're talking and the language we're using. Yeah, relatedly, I think, I mean, thinking about how when we were in graduate school and talking about democracy in the in the first decade of the century, we were um, we, most of the books and that we were reading from political science and other areas thinking about democracy was that we were in this state of apathy that after winning the cold war and liberal democracy had won around the world, um, that it, the problem was people weren't engaged because everything was being taken care of by the powers that be. And then uh, what we've seen since maybe starting with something like the uh, tea party movement that, and then the occupy movement from a different sort of position. And then, all the hubbub through the um, 2016 election and since, and thinking about how this has become such a contested issue. Uh, once again, we are uh, eager to kind of come back to some of our basic terms and think through the complexities that um, are getting moved around. I mean, the democracy versus just to go back to that one more time, I, for me, I grew up in um, the South and that was actually a popular thing to talk about somehow in connection with uh griping about the Civil War, uh, where there was always this notion about uh, the war between all the lost cause material, all the stuff coming up from co Confederate monuments, all that. Um, that was just part of the, the culture that I was brought up in. And somehow the, the Republic, not a democracy, was very much a part of that conversation uh, because of the value of the sovereign states and so forth. So uh, it's interesting to think about how these uh, different uh, contentious issues rise and fall in different moments based on whatever, what is going on. And, and I think uh, what we find valuable 
the one other ingredient we found valuable is thinking about how the 19th century might actually provide a more illuminating uh, body of evidence to think through the issues we're facing today, maybe even more helpful than the 20th century. So, A really interesting claim that you're getting at here a little bit, that democracy is not just an idea, a regime, it's a way of speaking. So it's dialogic. There's kind of this aspect that we've got to, speakers have to talk to each other to make meaning about something, and in this case, democracy. So I had a couple of questions. First, I mean, you, why do you see language itself as crucial, but perhaps neglected when we're talking about civic education? And I know there's a role for this book in that, but I mean, I, I think I think maybe you're right. What are we not understanding about language itself? And then um, also you say that maybe this book in the way that it thinks about language and thinks about keywords um, could be used to help educators who are both in the classroom and in the community. So maybe talking a little bit about how you see people using this book to have that dialogue. Yeah, I, it's a it's a great question, Katie. I think that, you know, so the book has so many different disciplines and kinds of intellectual approach represented history, political science, theology, religious studies. But, you know, Bert and I are both um, literary scholars. And I think that, I don't know, Bert, you could tell me what you think is, you know, in, in one sense, there's a lot of attention in American literature, especially of 19th century of that era to democracy. On the other hand, there's not really a role um, for people who study language and literature in the larger civics education landscape, which is mostly, um, and for understandable reasons, represented by political scientists and historians. Um, and I don't know, I think that, you know, one of the things I wonder about is what explains that? I, I mean, there's probably a historical answer with the, the change in rhetoric um, and how rhetoric has evolved as a discipline in K through 12 and in higher education. Um, but it's not even clear to me that in, in in sort of first year writing or composition classrooms, those spaces get understood as spaces for civic education. Um, in my sense, at least from the K through 12 landscape, and you know, Katie and Kara, tell me what your sense is, is that it's the same there. It's really a social science um, dominated world in civics education, um, but there, there, there is such a important role for um, verbal skills, right? Deliberation, debate, Katie, as you said, and so, I mean, in a way, the book I think is a is a question for how we can bring literature language into this interdisciplinary conversation. Yeah, and there's the possibility as well. I mean, as um, people working in English departments, that where we sort of get really expansive on how far we think our skills of reading and interpretation and historical analysis and rhetoric and political cultures and structures of feeling and all these things that just sort of pile on. And, and for me, I consider all of those elements to be important for thinking through issues related to, to notions of democracy. Um, that when we uh, certainly there are the ways that electoral politics play out and the roles of petitioning and the other formal institutional levers of governance or democratic governance that we either have or are lacking or, or whatever, however we measure that. That is a, that's huge. We can't have, just because we say we want a democracy and we want to participate, and if we don't have the institutions, then we're going to have a tough time. But there's also the parts where, um, Again, thinking back to the 19th century, where a lot of people who all of a sudden wanted to participate and were told, uh, we didn't actually mean you when we said the consent of the governed or didn't mean it in that way, uh, how people continued to think through what possibilities there could be to imagine the worlds in which 
these sort of uh, the sort of self-rule or individual empowerment or collective empowerment decision making uh, might play out in settings beyond just the basic levers of, and political institutions that we have. And so I think that that's where it becomes where maybe literary studies becomes uh, a contributor to the conversations about democracy because of the imagining of possibilities, the articulations of people who were not acknowledged as citizens or participants, uh, the worlds that, uh, and not just the rational thinking, but the the uh, emotional affects that people uh, might acquire or, or, or pursue in order to feel empowered uh, to, to think about through those languages. And there's a lot of material from literary studies and, and related fields that uh, become relevant, I think, uh, to, to really think through the complexities that might be needing to be addressed in this moment. I want to follow up on this point with both of you, Greg and Bert. You know, many of the issues dividing Americans today are absolutely political, both in the original and most elemental sense of that word. We have in America today what are essentially competing and radically different and also mutually exclusive conceptions of public good, of justice, and of the proper role of the state in its interactions with its quote-unquote citizens. As we're recording this discussion the week of February 20th, 2023, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene from Georgia um, tweeted out and has called for a national divorce um, and, you know, the political and physical separation of the so-called red states and blue states. There's also broader conversations happening um, in writing, um, in, in media, on social media about a national divorce. And our own Project Homefire at the Center for Politics actually found that swaths of the American public are willing to separate. Um, based on your book, um, I wonder if both of you can talk about what are the can talk about the ways we we might address the very pervasive challenges of different conceptions and attitudes about democracy and democratic values. One 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 way to think about that really important and difficult question is, you know, Astra Taylor's book that we draw on and in ours this amazing book Democracy may not exist but we'll miss it when it's gone and one of the points she makes that I didn't realize, but it's so true when you think about it is, you know, all these studies that young people don't believe in democracy. And, and her point is, well, in what way does our world give us a chance to experience democracy, right? You think at the workplace, um, in schools, in, in your sort of daily lives, where do we where do we find it? There aren't that many opportunities where um, participatory structures or values of liberty and equality get get enacted. Um, you know, and the other thing I was just looking at, uh, the, 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 what universities owe democracy book that I just, just came across my table and, um, Ronald Daniels, the president of Johns Hopkins, they did this experiment where basically they found out that Johns Hopkins students, they don't really know what are the basic values of democracy. And I find that true in my classes as well. It's like, you know, what are the two values of democracy? We get liberty right away, um, which maybe says something about where I teach. I'm sure it does. But um, we, we don't read equality is sort of it takes a long, long time to get there as the other value. Um, and so, you know, the, this this sense that we shouldn't presume knowledge of the values or the experience. And, and so maybe one way um, to get to that question is, and I think I learned this 
Kara, from from your wonderful student at James Madison, is you know what would it mean to think about um, a methodology of nonpartisanship? So uh, thinking about small d democracy as I really want to teach a class just every question is analyzed through a small d democracy lens with no other um, commitments or partisan positions. I mean, the thing I learned from from our wonderful essay on the word partisan by John Funchen, um, I had no idea that that is a word, it's basically a word of violence um, and exclusion. I think Bert and I wrote to him at, when we were going through drafts and said, is there something that is there something good you can find? There's something redeeming just to give a full. And he was like, no, there is nothing. <laughs> and I thought, wow, okay. And I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have considered that. Yeah. And I think, I think again, as educators, I mean, this is the area where I, I feel most inclined to think that about where we can try to, to address these issues. Um, um, obviously things have become even more contentious about the, the content we teach, whether the material coming out of AP African-American studies or, uh, other sort of, uh, what we get to teach, what we don't get to teach in different kinds of ways. Um, one of the things that I was, I, you know, I, at my small university went through a, a general education revision process recently, uh, and thinking about what our major values were going to be. And, um, most of those are, you know, whether it's questions about the core liberal arts tradition or it's about uh, things that are um, ready to be um, adapted to the, the work environment or our contemporary world or other kind of issues. Um, it's hard to find people who would agree with me when I said, what if we said our number one value is developing people ready to make collective decisions together? Um what if, what if like that was our, and there are a couple of places actually out there. Um, Longwood University is a small one in, in Virginia there that has established its entire uh, general education around civic engagement, uh, about collective decision-making. Um, th- these are, there are places that are putting that first and foremost. And, and that seems valuable to me when we you know, universities for the most part are about developing autonomous individual economic workers, you know, like how do we try to recalibrate a little bit so that I'm not just teaching like in the writing classroom skills for uh, individuals to just get their own, but rather to actually engage these questions and say, hey, this might be an important value to, to work into my future. Does your book help us understand what it would mean to, to do this work of framing everything through the lens of democracy or things like leadership through the lens of democracy? Could it help us um, think about leadership studies in some ways? Yeah, I think to the degree that uh, that's a good question, whether our book is doing that. I know that from my position, when I have c- considered the issues of charisma and other the, the risks of demagoguery and other things. I mean, one of the great books, uh, literary books about this is uh, Robert Penn Warren's 20th century book, All the King's Men, right? That is a wonderful meditation on a, um, it's someone who was crafted on the Governor Huey Long in Louisiana, who went from being an idealist to then wrestled with the sort of means versus ends questions about like, well, I'm going to do good, but it doesn't matter how I do it as long as I can get that end of a hospital built for people in need. Um, it's a fantastic meditation. And again, somewhere that literary studies or a, a literary text might provide some sense of the deeper meanings and feelings and structures and experiences of participants and certainly a meditation on that kind of leadership. I, I you know, I fall back on my own personal experience. I'm an old 
teams. I, I'm a little bit too devoted to the notion of team sports. Uh, growing up, played way too many, uh, carried it on way too long and was not nearly good enough to actually sort of play as long as I did. But I appreciate the notion of what a team does where you have all these different sort of, uh, I mean, a good coach or a good leader is going to empower all of the players uh, based on their different skills and abilities and what they can bring to, to, to the mix. And so you might have your superstars and you might have your role players and you might have, but if a good coach is going to empower all of his players to figure out the, um, to, to, to play their role, to, to be as, as good as they can to, to go as far as they can go. Now the metaphor breaks down a little bit when you start thinking about competition and other things like that. Um, but there's also a way I think that that notion of sports competition, you know, when, when you get to, when you lose and you get to come back and play again the next day, that's kind of a valuable thing that we've lost sight of, right. Where we just think 51% winner take all, and that's all that matters in our democratic processes these days. And to what degree, what if we think about democracy through that idea that it's not about just 51%, it's about everybody being empowered, everybody and like, if, if you don't get your way this time, how do you get to continue to participate in order to try to, to make it, make the case for your, for your belief, your interest, your desire, uh, the next time around, and again, keeping in mind, like the larger collective self-interest. I think, you know, at, to add to Bert's response and Katie, your question about, I think you use the word paradox, which I, I think is, is we were trying to, in designing the book, how can we make the history and the concept the conceptual part work together so that they shed light on one another. And uh, thanks to one of our readers, whoever you are, thank you. Um, they wanted us to structure the book through enduring dilemmas that are going to cross, cut across historical periods, um, but to use this history in the 19th century to shed light on some of these dilemmas. And so, you know, you know, the the chapter on tyranny is in a section called ambitions and distortions. Why do democratic dreams so easily become nightmares for some in democracy? Um, and so I think that maybe one of the questions for leaders at all levels is to reflect on those tensions and that, that those, those paradoxes, why um, and how uh, do the, is this sort of double edged working in, in democracy in the past and today? I'm so glad you mentioned that notion of dilemmas, and I want to pick up on that wonderful notion both across time and in time. There is an entire section of the book that focuses on institutions and arrangements. I wonder if you both can talk about how you view the challenges and promises that institutions pose for democracy, and what are the ways in which individuals in our society can think about creating more responsive institutions? Well, here, I think the Commission on Democratic Citizenship that is sponsored by the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, has they have provided, uh, at least a, in, in the broadest of strokes, a notion of the way that institutions and civil society and democratic cultures need to develop something of a virtuous cycle so that they can all support one another. Like if we just, if I somehow can magically get my students to be ready to participate democratically, but the institutions... Uh, and the elected officials never respond, then how long are they going to be able to maintain that enthusiasm or that that willingness to to put put in the work? Um, and so they they recommend they have recommendations regarding re reforms to our large institutions like expanding the House of Representatives and ranked choice voting and uh, expanding the Supreme or putting term limits on the Supreme Court. 
but those are only going to be valuable if we also get people engaged in different ways and we start building up our civic infrastructure, considering things like maybe a year of serv- a mandatory year of service for, for young people and other things like that. And so they provide a really helpful sort of set of recommendations to, to think through how uh, the institutions could end up being more responsive. I think part of the value of the historical notion, we, we so often think that the institutions are locked into place and are, are unchangeable. Uh, but that's not what was happening in the 19th century as they were continuing to, to reform and change. I mean, take the Supreme Court and the ways that its structure of nine justices and I mean, the term, the, the sort of lifetime terms are, are present in the Constitution, but other things get changed across uh, that period of time. And so I think that um, thinking through the like the essays on uh, the, the con- on Constitution itself and what that means, along with notions of citizenship and how that was never really locked into place uh, until after the Civil War. Um, these different sort of institutions that have existed have been malleable and, and have changed over time. And for those of us who are sort of worried about how things are going to change looking ahead, then seeing the history and seeing the ways that things did change across time, uh, can be a valuable, uh, enlightening experience for, I think a lot of people. And also revisiting, you know, thinking about like Sander Gustafson in our volume has a wonderful essay on the town hall meeting and how could the town hall meeting, which seems to have this northern genealogy, a New England genealogy, which is not entirely the case if you start thinking about how um, people in the 19th century post-Reconstruction imagined it. Um, but she ends her essay with, you know, what would it mean to use the town hall meeting structure for college campus life and thinking about community relations and and what students could contribute um, across time. So how can how can these institutions, as Bert's saying, um, how can we understand them as a templates, but also as as templates and structures that change and can change and should? The title of your book, Riffs on Democracy in America, Tocqueville's two volume um, opus magnum. to be democracies in America, and um, Kara got a little bit at kind of the brilliance of pluralizing the democracy part. Um, but but Tocqueville really saw associational life, as readers know, um, as the schools, as people have called them, of democracy in America. So I'm wondering about the how the book addresses civil society in other ways, perhaps giving other examples like the one you give, Greg, or or even to your own kind of defense of literature in some respect is having something to say about building civil society and our notion of democracy through dialogue with each other. Uh, well, part of my, part of my uh, other scholarly work, um, thinking about this question, sort of tries to move beyond uh, sort of most prominent uh, questions of democracy that were happening on the national scale and thinking about how they took on different uh, light and color and cast in, in different places. I think this has been happening in a lot of 19th century scholarship, uh, particularly the Colored Conventions Project that has spurred on a lot of thinking about African-American political thought uh, that is distinctive and alter- you know, offers some, some different approaches than what might be the more canonical or the more off-sided materials like a, like a Tocqueville. I mean, Tocqueville really sort of claimed so much about his, of his interest about um, town hall meetings and civic life from what he picked up in conversations with Jared Sparks, who thought that New England was the only place that got it right and everywhere else got it wrong. 
And so Tocqueville's, I mean, there's been some good scholarship that sort of brought this up, right? That Tocqueville's, even though he journeyed all over the country to see all these different things, what he thought was best and what he sort of came to represent as being the sort of key to associational life was drawn from a particular region and a particular place that had had that longstanding tradition. And maybe that is the best way, but what other ways of getting along and collective decision-making were happening across the country that are less celebrated, maybe because they're, they're messier, maybe because they're not as uh, formally appealing. Like there's a way that um, uh, there's a couple of great literary texts um, or literary studies texts called like the constitution as a work of art to think through the aesthetics and our values from the enlightenment and from the romantics and from uh, the neoclassical uh, thinkers who said, you know what, for it to be good, it needs to be very clean and coherent and needs to make sense. And whenever somebody like democracy is much messier than that, you know, anytime I've tried to do things that are democratic, I have to sit there and wait for other people to, to think through and, 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 and we disagree and we don't like the conflict all the time. And, and so um, you know, a lot of our literary sensibilities, a lot of our aesthetic sensibilities only sort of focus on the, the best that's ever been written, to, to borrow, you know, Matthew Arnold's uh, formulation of culture. But at the same time, what other narratives are out there? What other forms of expression have existed? And this is, to me, why it's valuable to think about democracies in the plural, to think through um, what different ways have different people tried to, to carry this out in practice? And then what might we learn from their successes and failures? On that point of Alexis de Tocqueville, I think it's really important to remember that de Tocqueville had a political agenda in terms of what he chose to write about. And democracy in America, he was selling a particular kind and form of politics and governments, governance that uh, he wanted France to adopt. Um, democracy in America was not just about documenting what was happening in the United States at the time. It was also a political marketing tool, and there was a specific agenda behind what was produced. De Tocqueville also leaves out quite a bit. Um, uh, Theta Scotchpole has talked, at, talked about how he has left out important parts about the role of the state in civic society. And Roger Smith um, has talked about what he termed ascriptive political traditions, um, so, you know, and a couple of the contributions in your book make points about what has been excluded from political institutions and processes. And several es essays do especially highlight the ways in which different groups have engaged in democratic practices and contributed to democracy. Um, for example, one of the essays acknowledges the contributions of indigenous communities and the ways in which they have had institutional structures imposed on them from the federal government or from state governments. And they have at the same time had to navigate state and federal government and structures. Um, indigenous communities have also originated um, participatory democratic governance um, that have been adopted and adapted in state governments and at the federal government level that we have learned uh, learned from, but those contributions have not always been acknowledged or credited. Um, and it's also important to remember that the dominant system in the United States has privileged written word. 
Um, and it made me think, for example, about how um, the Ute in the Southwest, for example, use democratic participatory practices in government governance um, long before there was a constitutional democracy in the United States. And in many ways, uh, the imposition of a written constitution by the federal government in the early 1900s on the tribes circumscribed kinds of democratic practices in those communities and populations. Greg, you've already mentioned Astra Taylor, and I want to return to the concluding section of the book. Um, in, in that section, you write that the 21st century democratic activist and thinker Astra Taylor encourages us to replace the well-worn figure of the founding fathers with the less familiar perennial midwives as our governing metaphor in American democracy. I'm wondering if you can share how contributors to this new volume invite us to reimagine and recreate democracy that is more responsive, inclusive, and just. And what are the responsibilities of both individuals and our collective society in this endeavor? I think one way to answer that question is to return to the conversation we had a moment ago with Katie's question about institutions and form and also your sense care of you know, what what do we what's the relationship between past and present and change here I and mean, I think that you gave the example Kara of uh, Elena Roberts who writes on indigenous settlement and Elizabeth Dillon who talks about forms of representation and so what you know for as Elena Roberts points out and and Dillon points out too the what one constituency thinks about representation, political representation, is for indigenous people um, not something that is part of their vision of democracy. In fact, is you know conscripting them into um, uh, order that is not their own. And so, I think you know, in the sense of democracies in America, I think the question for us today is how do we come up with a pluralistic vision of democracy that is aware of the past, um, but not wanting to sort of return to some past that probably never really existed uh, in truth. And I think that, you know, one way to one way to consider that is to think about how the very tensions of democracy, the conceptual dilemmas um, exist within the language we use, the structures we use, um, to think and act. And, and maybe one way that the book can make a contribution in that regard is to attune us um, to that past uh, without keeping us tethered, or, or we don't want to be tethered to that past. We want to be aware of it, but also to the possibilities. I think that's totally right. And I, I just maybe the, the one other essay by James Sanders concerning scale, while he is thinking primarily about issues of the Amer of Las Americas, thinking about democracy well beyond the borders of the United States and all the different notions that that meant in the 19th century. The perennial midwives notion gives us a difference. In it's a temporal scaling that makes us see uh, our role right now as being continuing participants in this whole process. And that is carrying on both the good and the bad and, the, and, and also the ugly from our historical legacy uh, and how we're uh, going to need to contribute and con continue contributing uh, in some sort of way that, you know, 
not necessarily means that we know better than those who have come before, but also doesn't just decide that they that they had the pre- precise formula that was going to fit across time, uh, but rather that this is something that we need to continue to work on and adapt for our changing needs and places uh, and, and issues that we are confronting. Uh, to think that, you know, uh, founders might have been like to take Russ Castronovo's essay on security and, and the notion that Benjamin Franklin was thinking about security in the same way we're dealing with cybersecurity and other kind of issues like that. Um, you know, we're, we're dealing with a new new combination of issues. And so how do we adapt our institutions and structures as well as our culture to, to, to make sure that we still maintain that ideal that people are, are engaged and empowered um, through our collective decision making. Craig Lasky and Bert Emerson, thank you so much for joining us and for the important contributions to learning and conversations you are making through Democracies in America. Listeners, you can buy the new book through Oxford University Press. A link and discount code are available in the episode notes.